Second Corinthians five verses nine and ten, making our way through this text. And truthfully, you've got to be honest that uh, the first eight verses have gone relatively fast. Don't worry, I'll slow down. Because so, I know that you guys don't want to get too much too fast or too little, too little slow or any of them other things. Okay, we'll pray and then read verses 9 and 10. Father, we come before your throne. Uh, Lord, I pray with hearts that are overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I think about our community. I think about your church. And yet, Father, you are always faithful. Father, you are with us always, even into the end of the age. And Father, even now, as we look at this wonderful brother, the Apostle Paul, uh, Father, I pray that we take courage and we understand um, what motivated him. But yet, Lord, understand that the same spirit that worked in the Apostle Paul is the same one that works in us. Father, help us. Help us to stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Regardless of the storm, regardless of the turmoil, uh, regardless of the heartache, that, Father, we will be known as children of the Most High God. And those who cross our lives will know that and understand that. To you and you alone, our King. Amen. Verse 9, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. When I look at this, the first thing that jumps out at me is therefore. Okay, because he's going to be summarizing what he's laid out. I shared with you guys who've been with us for a time. We've been through 1 Corinthians. Now we're in 2 Corinthians. That when you look at 1 Corinthians, you're looking the first six chapters. He is just blistering their egos. All right, and then in chapter 7, through the conclusion of the book, he deals with the issues that they had asked him about. The two letters that we have for Corinthians are actually two letters of four. There was one written prior to 1 Corinthians, then 1 Corinthians was written, then there is what is called the severe letter, written between 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then you have 2 Corinthians. When I look at 1 Corinthians in its whole, I understand what he's trying to say. You need to look at yourself first. Okay? Because they had gotten to the place where they were even perverting spiritual gifts. Alright? And it was all based on bring attention to me. A self-centeredness. Narcissism. In the church. I, I can't believe that. How can you look at the cross at Calvary and be boastful of anything? And yet... We manage. Okay? Once that is dealt with in 1 Corinthians, the self-evaluation, then you move into 2 Corinthians. And the 2 Corinthians is dealing with what I call ministry. 
Okay, ministry is not a minister, a paid position. Ministry is service. And if you are saved, you are a minister to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't get anything today, get that. Because verse 10 here says, guess what? You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account what you did in the body, which makes every one of us a minister. Okay, you have been equipped and you have been trained and you have been strengthened for the task that God has called each and every one of you to each of us. And not only that, the Holy Spirit indwells you and gives you a supernatural ability to do something you couldn't do on your own. Please understand, spiritual gifts has nothing to do with talents. Okay? Please understand that. The Apostle Paul is walking us through, quote unquote, ministry now. And we come to chapter 5 and we looked at it. And he explains the temporal versus the eternal. Okay? Because he's basing it on chapter 4, which is our ministry, which is that of the new covenant. Okay? I've, I've had people say, well, why don't you ever teach in the Old Testament? Well, that's the Old Covenant. And I am a minister of the New Covenant. Once I get done with every book in the New Testament... I'll go do some stuff in the Old Testament. And everybody's like, oh, God, hope we don't live that long. But anyway, anyway, but, but I share that with you because we miss that. We are ministers of the new covenant. OK, and he contrasted in chapter four. Here is the covenant of Moses. OK, one person got to see God. Here's the new covenant. We all see God. And then he gets in light of no matter what the suffering is, he starts out in verse 1, if this earthly tent is being torn down, dismantled, folded up, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we have a building from God. Not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. Do we understand that? See... You and I too many times get locked into the temporal instead of looking to the eternal. I mean, that whole section, I taught that as a topic on happily facing death. And if you're a Christian, death has no issue to me. Actually, death to a Christian is your final reward. I'm out of here. My race is complete. Hallelujah. I go be with Jesus. And so when you move into chapter uh, in verses nine and 10, again, you see, because in verse six, he says, therefore, be of good courage. Don't be a coward. Be bold. You have nothing to fear. But then he uses therefore again in verse nine, verse nine. We also have as our ambition. OK, and in this text. What you will see is what is Paul's ambition? And then I want to highlight it over the next few weeks. Here's Paul's ambition. Where's yours? 
Where's yours? Because remember, we supposedly already dealt with our own personal sin in 1 Corinthians. So now we are ready to minister. Okay, but the key will come. What is your ambition? Now, let's be realistic. When I read this through, now this is New American Standard Translation. Therefore, we also have as our ambition. Stop right there. Ambition. Okay, when you and I think about the word ambition, um, does it have a positive view or a negative view? It has a bad reputation. If you're an ambitious person in our society today, it's got a bad reputation. And what I did is I went back. You guys know I have that fatal character flaw of loving history. I, I still don't understand why we love history, but I love history. So I went back and I looked at ambition and it became very clear that the ambition has had a bad reputation For a long time. (laughs) The Puritans. That's a little ways back, 1700s. The Puritans called ambition a gilded misery. Sign me up for that. (laughs) Some Puritans called it a secret poisoning. A hidden plague. One of the chief bishops of the Puritans said it is the engineer of deceit. The mother of hypocrisy. The parent of envy. The origin of vice of angels and men. The destroyer of virtue. The blinder of hearts, the remedies unto disease. Puritans really didn't look on it favorably, I'm thinking. Um, we've heard it called blind ambition. Um, some of the early bishops coming out of uh, the Scottish Reformation. Um, It is an ambition that has called many, if not all, to sell their souls for a crown stuffed with thorns. One of my favorites was, high seats are never uneasy ones. And throughout history, whether it is the writing, the time of the Corinthian letters when Rome was ruling, or to today, ambition has caused many to compromise their convictions. It has destroyed characters, the character of man and individuals, and it has destroyed the beliefs of the same.
self-centered, proud, driven carelessness. The insensitive, proud, driven, careless, and it will run over everything. I have watched it hijack families. I've seen it destroy families. I read about it destroying it. It destroys friends. It destroys relationship. Now, the word that you see here, verse 9, ambition, comes from a Latin word. And my Latin is as good as my English. And it is ambo amberage. Ambo amberage. Okay? And in the Latin, that word means to go both ways. Okay? Um, there is a drive to achieve. We've all seen it. We've all played to it. We've all experienced it. There is a drive in the human being to be great. This word in the Latin originally meant not to go one direction, but to go both directions. Do whatever is needed to gain The desire is how the Roman culture looked at it. Um, If you read some of the secular writings of the Romans at the time of the New Testament, you will see that it's used um, to speak of facing both ways at one time. It was construed as a person with no convictions. That would do anything for self-achievement. In the Roman times, at the writing of this letter, okay, understanding that Corinth was a free colony from the Roman government. Slaves who were set free were given a plot of land that they could start a house, a business, or whatever they wanted in the city of Corinth. The common use of this word, for the most part, <laughs> described what they classified as their politicians. That's what history said. I have heard political speeches in my life where the speaker would contradict himself in the middle of a paragraph and people would tell me how great a speaker he was. And you just sit and look at yourself and think, well, that might be a great speaker, but I think they're going both ways at once. Okay, which is a person of no convictions. I think that we're in a political cycle right now and we look at it and we see that. And it doesn't matter the party. I mean, everybody says, well, if they're in politics, is there an ambition there? Okay, and at what point are they willing to can their convictions to get their desired intent? Okay, I think that's one of the things that's fascinating about Tim Tebow. He doesn't compromise his convictions. Um, and I say that they had a NFL today or one of those NFL channels. They put a mic on him for a um, football game. Okay, so he's mic'd the whole time. I mean, when he's getting driven into the ground to eat dirt, he still has the microphone on him. So they're recording everything he says. And the first thing that the reporter said is that he never even came close to profanity. 
The kid has his convictions. He can't pass, but, but he has his convictions. I'm thinking he should try right-handed. <laughs> try right, buddy. Okay, but but th- this is an amazing thing that you and I have to pay attention to because you and I are surrounded by ambition and or ambitious people. The Roman world was so eager to gain power, to so eager for prestige, uh, to s- that, that, that they were willing to satisfy both sides of every issue. Now think about that for a second. You, you sit and tell yourself that can't be done, but I'm telling you what, you still live in it. Whatever it takes to get the most votes. And you know what? That whole thing is alive and well in the body of Christ today. And when I look at this letter based on ministry, how many in ministry are willing to give up their convictions so that they can get the desired return that they want? Ambition has a desire and it, and it shows up in, in so many ways. It can be in money. It can be in power, um, visibility. Um, maybe I just want popular approval, um, recognition to the point that those desires become so massive that the individual can sacrifice their principles and sacrifice their character. So if I look at it from the Latin viewpoint, I say, that's kind of a bummer. Okay, but even if I look at it from the English viewpoint, we have it. And most of the time you throw out ambition, it has a negative connotation to it. And then if you really want to put the person down, they are blindly ambitious. It has a negative to it. One of the early bishops of the church, Eubius, said that ambition always sinful and ordinary men. Unquote. Everybody is sinful when they are ambitious. That's what they taught. And it was a great warning to anyone in spiritual leadership. Beware of ambition. You know what? And there's a part of me that I understand their writings. We are children of Adam. Okay? And I hate to break the news to you. We want to be great. Think about the original sin. If you eat of this, what will you be? You will know as God knows. What is that? That's ambition. With the self-centeredness. Jesus became small. Hmm. We want to rule. He came to serve. Charles Spurgeon says, Too many want to be carried out on the shoulders of men as great heroes when they carried your king out on a cross. All right. Jeremiah even speaks of this. Jeremiah 45.5 says, 
But you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. I'm going to bring disaster on all flesh. That's pretty serious. Jeremiah said, if you're going after ambition, (laughs) get ready. But yet, here's the Apostle Paul. And he says, we have as our ambition. You know what? When I look at it, society's view on ambition, there may be a problem. Okay, but one of the things that I've learned, several things I've learned. It's, it's like in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That term Word there is Logos. So in the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. Okay, that's the word we get logic from. So there's times that you and I, we think that this is logical. But in God's eyes, it's not. So when you look at and you think, well, let's logically think this through, then you have to go back to the Bible. Because you have to see how God would look at it. Our societies in our history, the king wants his people to die for him, correct? God's logic says the king shall die in place of the people. Okay, which one is logical? Well, do you think you can earn your salvation? No. All right, so God's logic is true. It's uh, you hear you see a word in the New Testament translated lust. Now, when you hear the word lust, has it got a positive to it or does it have a negative to it? It's a negative. The word in the Greek is epithumia. Anytime you see epi in it and then thumia is the word lust, but it is like as maddening lust epithumia. But if I have a maddening lust for the things of God, is that bad? See, so the context of the word you see lust is what is its context? What is it telling me? The same with the word ambition. Believe it or not, biblically, there's legitimate ambition. And ambition, now look what it says here. Whether at home or absent, the ambition of the Apostle Paul was what? To be pleasing to him. That's fascinating. See, what Jeremiah forbids in chapter 45 is an ambition not to please God, but an ambition to please self, man. That's why you can have it, let's be two ways. Let me please this group. Let me please this group. Let me do it so that they both think that I'm there to please them when the desire is me. Okay? See, there are those that I have watched in the evangelical community over years 
that are seeking great things for self. One of the things that I have seen on a regular basis um, is just in the last probably 20 years is the quote-unquote birth of the quote-unquote mega church, where the church grew exponentially numerically. And I don't have any problem with that. Okay, I'm not an anti-mega church guy. I do have a problem when the pastor decides he wants to write a book on how he did that. Okay. You know, I hear people on a regular basis says, well, Peter came out and, and he preached his first sermon. Three points and an altar call. 3,000 people got saved. Do you understand the leadership foundation that he had? He had the other 11 disciples who had lived and walked with Jesus for three years. You know what? If we preach the message and 3,000 people got saved, I'm leaving. Because I know that you just opened up a serious can of worms. And I don't want no part of worms. I've been in this church too long to have to deal with worms. Because that's what you're going to deal with. All of these people all of a sudden are ready. You know what? We don't have a leadership base big enough. You know, how many people in this church right now said, I will quit my job so I can minister full time to the Lord Jesus Christ? Right now. Really? Well, how much does it pay? Okay. That's a tough question. That is a tough question. When I became senior pastor of this church, the reason it was so easy for me is that I was in the construction trade <laughs> and it was in the, <laughs> it was in the toilet. It wasn't like I was working 40 hours a week. Sure, man. No problem. How long do you want me to do it? Okay. It's not that all ambition is sinful, but always selfishness will corrupt ambition. Please understand that. When you put self in the ambition, you will ruin it. Now then, this letter written on the Greek peninsula in the city of Corinth has behind it a Greek culture. Okay, now it's, it's a Roman colony, but it's a Greek culture. If you read history, history will tell you that Rome defeated the Greeks militarily and the Greeks defeated the Romans morally. Okay, the Greeks saw ambition as a noble thing. Duh. <laughs> okay, what would you expect from the Greeks? Um, so Paul is using the word here. But he hasn't loaded it with negative. Remember what he's coming out of. He's just given a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. Then he moved into it and says that even though we are, we, ha- we are in these clay pots, you know, we have this precious treasure that is inside. And then he moves on after that and says, even if this clay pot's being dismantled, it's okay because it doesn't really matter to me. Because I am here for but this time, and in this time, then I look for the resurrection of my body. That's fine. 
I can do that. And then he moves into this. Therefore, we have as our ambition. Why? I'm looking forward to the resurrection of my body so it will fit with the resurrected soul I have. And therefore, I have as an ambition. The Greek term, and I was going to try to pronounce it, but eh, nope. Literally means to love honor. Love what is honorable. Consumed by the passion toward that which is the most honorable. That's amazing. I thought the Greeks thought that up. What is the most exalted? What is the most noble? Uh, was it two years ago? I uh, rode back to uh, Washington, D.C. I, I, I had grown up and had been to D.C. in that area a few times. But when I left, um, there was no Vietnam Memorial. And uh, I, there was, so it was, for me, it was the first time to see the Vietnam Memorial. And, and I actually have some friends whose names are on it, and, and I went looking. Um, and when you, you get to it, you, you see all the, the, the new World War II memorial is there, and it's this great big thing. You see that Washington, isn't the Washington with the big monument, is the big pointy thing? Okay, and then you got over here Lincoln's place, you know, Jefferson's down over here, and, and, and you see a lot of cool stuff. And all of a sudden you kind of come around a corner here and you just come through the trees and all of a sudden you see this black granite. It goes like that and goes like that in a V. And I thought 58,000 plus names on that wall and how many families were affected by the death of those 58,000. And there's the honor. But they're dead. And I thought, is there any greater than to give your life? And it's amazing to me. I mean, you're, you're a few years removed from that conflict. But when I came around the corner and looked at that thing, um, it was, you just sort of like, whoa. Okay, and then, then I was with a, a number of vets, um, some of them Vietnam that's had actually served in Southeast Asia. And they, they are that quote-unquote biker group. And you see them crying. Okay, and I mean, these are some hardcore people. But you see them weeping. And, and you just kind of stop and you think, um, hmm, Wow. And when I read this word and I think about striving, striving for the noblest of all goals, what is that? Paul says to be pleasing to him. And I thought about the soldiers all willing to throw their life on the line for their squad, their NCOs, their junior lieutenants, their captains, the generals, uh, the whatever, who says, this is what we have to do. And it may cost you your life. And you go over to Arlington, 
and you see the front yard of Robert E. Lee's place strewn with white tombstones. And I mean, it just looks like they're innumerable. And they were originally, Arlington was originally placed there because it was Robert E. Lee's place who was the head of the Southern Army and they planted all of the Union dead there because they didn't want him to forget. You're like, well, that's pleasant. And yet you think of the nobility of laying your life down for your commanders, for your comrade in arms. The love of what is truly honorable. Elevated. Paul speaks of this ambition here, and it is the noblest. Pleasing to the Lord. A a place for noble ambition in the Christian life is okay. Is okay. A place for a passion for what is excellent, for what is best. There's nothing wrong with it. Even though when you think about ambition, you kind of have to back away every once in a while and think, oh my God, am I too ambitious? And yet, if your ambition is based on self, then I can emphatically say, yeah, (laughs) you're too ambitious. Because one of the things that I've shared with you is what's lacking in a lot of our lives is contentment and ambition will destroy contentment. It's selfish ambition. How are you ever going to be content? You can't be content. It's impossible to be content. But if I have an ambition to be pleasing to him, you will always be content. You know, it's just like I was saying in Sunday school class, because the only thing I'm doing is seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And you know what? That is such a simple principle that we all completely forget. Because did you understand that if I do that, he's only going to add all things unto me. <laughs> That's all. But yet we get out there in our ambition. You know, it's like if I go back to the illustration of the mega church. One of the things that I have learned is as, as a Christian. Is that if you get to invest in the eternal destiny of one soul. Do you realize what you have done? There is no greater privilege on the planet Earth. You know, you hear people saying, well, if I could meet somebody, who is it you would like to meet? If I can invest in one soul and their eternal destiny, really? There's not a human being on this planet that I would rather meet than the ability. And I don't even care who they are. I don't care who they are. And yet I watch us in our self-centeredness thinking that I must have great masses of people. No. No, I don't think so. 
I don't think so. I remember Dr. Olford for years and years and years. He prayed for a great revival, another great awakening in the United States. And he was convinced he had act, was actually out of the country when 9-11 happened. And they had to turn around and go back to England and, and wait. And, um, uh, of course, they had relatives, loved ones, co-laborers here in, in the United States. And then, you know, they're stuck in England. You're getting bits and pieces of the information. So you don't really know what's going on. And I remember him telling me about it. He thought that that was going to be the catalyst for the great awakening. That, that, that the spiritual truth that the United States has free access to would rise to the top. And the glory of the exalted God would shine like never before. I don't think it happened. I don't think it happened. And I think that part of it is a lack of of true, true ambition. The ambition to please Him. That ambition that says, I must decrease, he must increase. The true ambition that says, these things I have read in your word and I will not compromise. I will stand on them. Paul had that. Boy, did Paul have that. And, and it's funny because when I wrote this note down, I, I, I had to I had to stop and back away from it. But it was just one of those things that you know it just comes to your mind and you jot it down and you wait a minute, okay? But I wrote this down. Paul was an ambitious man. When you first hear that, if you say such and such is an ambitious man, there's a part of you who says, "Ooh." Be careful, <laughs> you know, keep him at arm's length. But Paul was an ambitious man. Paul, for lack of a better term, was a driven man. In Romans chapter, let me give you this and we'll kind of close with this. Uh, Romans 15, same verb is used that we translate here, ambitious. Romans fifteen twenty. In this translation, it is translated aspire. Okay? In the Corinthian letter, it is translated ambition. Ambitious. And this I aspire to. Okay? This is my ambition, Paul says. You know what it is? To preach the gospel. Not where Christ is already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. That's kind of amazing in light of our quote-unquote church planting movement. But that's a whole nother message. But do you, have you thought about that? When you think about your ambitions, because I know that everybody in here has some type of an ambition. It may be to be, get your house paid off. It may be to get your 401k back up or whatever. Um, get my 101k to a 401k. 
um, or whatever it might be. It may be to have a certain education for your kids. Uh, you know, I watch it. I have my first granddaughter now and, and everybody's like, dun, dun, dun. it's great, ain't it? She wakes up every two hours, you know, and I want her to visit me. Why? You know, and everybody says, well, you're just cold. No, I did that. And when I did it years ago, I was younger and could tolerate it. I'm older now and I don't tolerate it. Okay? And I know that if I say, well, can you go out in the barn and sleep? But it'll be me. <laughs> so there's that part of me that says, But we always have these things that if I I have this ambition, I can move it this way and this way and this way and this way. And yet, and if it doesn't go your way, what is your response? God glorifying, I know. You just smile and say, thank you, Jesus. All these plantings, all these things I prepared for, they all went down the toilet and I love you. Why? Because your ambition is based on self. If you have the ambition the Apostle Paul had to preach the gospel, and Lord, if I only get to preach it to one, now you're a minister. You're ready. I am driven by the things of Christ. I want to be pleasing to Him who bought and paid for me. Okay, so when I look at this, same verb here in Romans 15, to preach the gospel, why? It's pleasing to God. That's why I get cranky when I hear people saying, well, we need a mentoring program. A what? A mentoring program. No, God called it discipleship. Okay, I'm going to use his words and I don't believe you should change them. As a father, I discipled my kids. All right. And I did it sometimes preaching the word. I sometimes preached the word and never spoke. You and I have all been called to that. The mothers will raise their children in the way of the book. Timothy's mother and grandmother raised him that way. So when the Apostle Paul comes strolling through, got stoned left for dead, and he came back in and continued to what? Preach the good news. Timothy's like, oh, dude is nuts. That's not what he said. Okay, these are the things that you and I have to pay attention to. Why? What is your ambition? What consumes your thinking processes? What is the majority of your thinking processes based on? Because I guarantee you, in most cases, it's you. Not the things of God. And we've made it easy. We've got channel changers now. I don't even have to get up and change the channel. So I can sit there and get 9,000 TV stations and do this all day long and never accomplish a thing. Why? There's just nothing on. Well, quit, put the thing down. Go read your Bible. Well, that takes energy. We'll use your thumb to do it because it's gotten all kinds of exercise. 
And I'm not saying this to hurt people. I'm saying there's nobody in this room that doesn't have ambition. It's part of our makeup. But my question is, what is your ambition focused on? Paul had an honorable ambition. And you see it there in your outline. He had a goal. He had devotion. He had motive. And over the next few weeks, we shall look at these things. But I wanted to lay a foundation on ambition. Okay, because I don't know what your translation is. Mine's New American Standard. My translation says ambition. It's aspire to. And it literally means to seek. a Passionately seek the highest or the noblest. And to please him is the highest and the noblest. And it doesn't get any more complicated than preaching the gospel. Now listen, it doesn't mean that you're going to stand up behind a pulpit and just get after it. Okay? You proclaim the gospel. That's preaching. Proclaim the gospel. Okay? The problem that I've seen in the evangelical community, most people don't even know what it is. They don't know what the Bible says. I heard a guy just this week on one of the shows says, well, everybody, because it was talking about Tim Tebow. Well, everybody knows God helps those who helps themselves. No, he doesn't. Pride goes before the fall and you're standing in line. No, you know, we all know that there was three wise men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? But I hear people says, well, do you take that book literally? Yep. I sure do. I mean, really? Yes, I do. See, then you have to understand this is what the gospel. People ask me what the gospel. Well, ain't that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No, it's Genesis to Revelations. That's the gospel. The good news. The problem with the good news is we don't want to hear the bad news first. And when you get the good news, you have to understand what the bad news was. You were an enemy to God. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus Christ paid the penalty. A debt that you couldn't pay. That is our passion. How do you disciple somebody if you don't know what to tell them? It's really not that complicated. I really wish it was more complicated. We try to make it more complicated. We like to throw little things at it. But the truth of the matter is, it's not that complicated. And the reason is, is because we want to be pleasing to Him. Without faith, you cannot please God. Okay? What's your faith in? What's your faith in? The things of God or the things of man? It's that simple. Over the next few weeks, we'll look at what the Apostle Paul's passion was. And we'll also look at why he was devoted. But we will also see, and I, and I, like, I like verse 10. It's what I call the motivator. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That should motivate us. Now listen, please understand that text. For what we've done where? In the body. In the church. Okay? We'll look at these in the next week. Father, we come before your throne. Thank you, Lord. The amazing things that you have done. Lord, may we never take one another for granted. May we never take the time for granted. And yet, Lord, uh, may we be found faithful. Father, make it clear in our hearts these days.
this day what our ambition is. And Father, let that ambition be to pleasing you. Help us, Lord. With so much going on in our universe and so much going on in our societies, uh, it is so easily to be, to, to, to be distracted. Help us. Help us walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Help us to be an encouragement to one another. Help us to be as faithful as you are faithful to us as we continue to make disciples of all nations even as we are going. Father, as uh, you ruled the Apostle Paul's life, may you rule ours to your glory and to your praise. In Christ's name, amen.